Pennsylvania has a long tradition of manufacturing centers. They called them ironworks, places where people came together to build things. This podcast is about building and sustaining our democracy. We call it Democracy Works. Hi, I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. And this is Democracy Works. We have a special guest today, Chris. Yeah, really special. Tommy Smith, who along with John Carlos is well remembered for his 1968 protest at the Mexico City Olympics, uh, where they both raised their fists in the air. Right. And and uh, we were fortunate, fortunate enough to get a, a few minutes of his time, and it, and it really fits well with the McCourtney Institute's kind of focus on dissent and, and specifically democratic dissent. And uh, it also is a, a really interesting and provocative bookend to, uh, to our talk with Abe Kahn about Colin Kaepernick. Because in that, in that instance, that protest, uh, again in sports, again by a black man, again with respect to um, protesting treatment of African Americans in American society, uh, is going on right now, right? Yep. And people are reacting to it right now. And with, um, with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, um, you have the, the perspective of 50 years. Yeah, and again, again, a, a, an African-American athlete who's paying a heavy price for their protest. Exactly. I think yeah. that's a really interesting uh, right. thing. Tommy to, Smith was kicked off the Olympic team. Yep. They were kicked out of the village. Yep. They were sent home. Right, and, and uh, experienced a lot of uh, death threats, a lot of uh, vilification from, yeah. from not just to him but to his family. Yeah, and Colin, uh, Colin Kaepernick can't get a job. Right. Can't get a job playing, playing pro football. And um, there's something that uh, that sacrifice, I think, gives uh, the protest a kind of um, standing in democratic society that really compels us to take that protest seriously. If somebody's willing to make that kind of commitment and put their future life on the line, then I think that fact alone— of course, they're honored now with a statue in the new African-American Museum on the, uh, and, uh, on the National Mall and State. on the San Jose yeah, State yeah, campus. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and so what is it? Is that, is that, why is that? Why did it change like that? Is it just the kind of veneer of time passing that it doesn't seem as, um, as, as ugly or as controversial as it was? Or is it because... This act, actually, in retrospect and with um, the passage of time, we come to recognize that it did call us to uh, a better form of equality, a better expression of our ideals. Right. In a in a civil rights movement that will have go on to have many successes, already had had right many successes Mm -hmm. and still many battles yet to go. Clearly. And Colin Kaepernick represents that as much as anything. Right. Right. An issue that really was not even on the table back then about uh, the uh, unequal treatment of African-Americans in the American judicial system. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, I have we've talked about it before, just sort of a great civil rights issue of our time. Right. Absolutely. And so um, when I was uh, when I was thinking about this, I I recalled something that Abe said about uh, Colin Kaepernick, where there was. an ex-Marine who was in the NFL, his name was Nate Boyer, who when he saw this protest or heard about it, he said, I really don't like what you're doing, 
but I'm willing to listen. And it really just strikes me that that is a, in its own way, kind of um, the 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 right response of a democratic citizen to protest. Yeah. You don't have to like it. You don't have to even accept it. But the, the fact that somebody is willing to put that much of their own, you know, future on the line and be willing to potentially sacrifice that future means that you, as the recipient of that protest, are required to at least listen to what they have to say. Yeah, well, let's hear from him. He is walking American history. Yes, And you don't is. get a chance to see that very yeah, often. Yeah, so we should stop talking. We should stop talking. So that we could hear from Absolutely. Tommy Smith. Yeah. Jenna? Tommy Smith, thank you so much for joining us today on Democracy Works. Jenna, nice being here. So um, I, I definitely want to talk about uh, the 1968 Olympics and your activism at San Jose State leading up to that. But um, before we get to that, I'd like to, to back up a little bit. Um, I know that you um, were, were born in Texas, grew up in California. Um, what, what was your family like? Were, did you come from a, a political family? Did you talk politics at, at the dinner table or go to you know rallies or speeches or other, other political No, events? no, just, just the opposite, in fact. Uh, my family was a sharecropper's background. Uh, my dad really had uh, no education. Uh, my mother, who was uh, a part Cherokee, dad was, uh, his lineage is from uh, Madagascar. Uh, uh, they moved, uh, met, I think, in Texas, and we were sharecroppers, just, you know, dirt sharecroppers. We had no political background or no political uh, personal issues, but there were issues out there in the in, in, in society in the system that we n- knew nothing about because of where we were, uh, the educational process or background that we had, zero, zero. There was no pol- there was no politics. Educational process was very dim. Uh, we worked from grassroots up until I got to uh, junior senior year in college. I mean in uh, high school, and that was the time the social change began. And I came in just in time to see it. But you see, before I read about it, I lived it. So when I start reading about it, I remember those times as coming from the backwoods of Texas through the, the sharecropping area, through the San Joaquin Valley. Up, I lived those areas. Not in the South. I wasn't in the South, but in California, which was 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 shadowing the South in terms of the uh, in terms of the uh, field work instead of the academic plans. So, you know, you get to San Jose State. Now, um, were you drawn there because of its, its track and field program or because of Dr. Edwards? Or how did, how did all of those pieces kind of come together? There were many colleges uh, looking to recruit me. The last two colleges out of about 36 was San Jose State and USC, the University of Southern California. Uh, I visited one of these, uh, you know, athletic visits to the college. Uh, it was kind of big. They should not have taken me to Disneyland. <laughs> Don't should not take me to Disney. Scared the heck out of me. Disneyland, you know. I'm, I'm used to two-story buildings, and they, that was really high, high, uh, because I'm from you know the, the sharecroppers with the cabins and not buildings. That scared me. Uh, they put me on a blind date, which was a no-no. I didn't know anything about that. Uh, so when they came home, I you know, finished shaking and finished being nervous about that trip. Then I thought San Jose State, academically, it was what I wanted also. 
because I wanted to become a school teacher, so social science. Back then, it was social science. You couldn't, uh, you had to major in social science, then uh, 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 branch off to sociology if you wanted to get a, another degree other than uh, just a, a California teaching credential. So I made a trip to San Jose. It was simple. Building was short, not that tall. And if you know anything about San Jose, it was kind of backward <laughs> in terms of its, its uh, 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 eligibility for being a big city. It was a small city. Tell me about meeting Dr. Edwards and making this transition into to, to becoming once, an activist. Once I, I started school, I think he was one of the first people I met at San Jose State because he was a senior. as I, I, I was coming in as a freshman. The first thing he told me, he said, there's no way that you could come here with me being here and not carry your book. Whenever I see you, carry a book. Even though you don't read it, just let me know. You, uh, I think you're reading it. And uh, so I got a feel for him and his educational power you know, when I first got there. So that helped me tremendously. I started carrying a book. You know, I started carrying two books. And then I started reading the first one. You know, you know a year later, then <laughs> <laughs> I began to read the second one. And it would become interesting because he would ask me questions. Well, what about this first book I saw you with? You know, and I, So that, you know... I know it's a dismal look on the educational process I was going through, but I was a fast learner. I had to be because I didn't know very much once I got to a San Jose State except cotton, corn, hogs, cows, <laughs> chicken, ducks, you know, that, that right. type of thing. Right. I always believe in a higher source. I was a, a little uh, a kid that uh, we had to go to church every Sunday, every Sunday. Uh, and I, I, that, that was my strength. Believe in something bigger than you, that way you wouldn't have any problem learning because somebody else would help you. That's faith, that believing in instead of doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was my shot right there. And so um, given that you kind of came from this simple sharecropping background, your parents weren't really yeah. you know, you know, very political, what did they think as you, you started to be, take on this, this more activist role and you know, become more political yourself? There were 12 of us. I was number seven. Uh, my birthday's in June. Uh, there's five boys. I was number three. Uh, uh, so I was right in the middle of everything. And my mom and my dad really didn't know enough about the educational process, especially on the political side, to ask me questions about what I was doing. They heard about it. Now, how did they hear about it? Well, there were people in town would let them know what well, Tommy is doing pretty good. The town was predominantly white town. And they received a lot of hassle. They received a lot of threats because of what their son was doing, what their son was saying. And uh, uh, I understood these things. I heard these things through my younger brothers and sisters because I told you I was right in the middle of everybody. So my my younger brothers and sisters would tell me. My older brothers and sisters would kind of mimic them, but on a higher level than them. They would say, well, you you know, maybe you should start doing. My younger siblings would say, you did. You see, so there I did, and there I should have been, or sh- and I'm in the middle, t- trying to make a decision of really what I, sh- I should do. So I was bounced back and forth on, on uh, many levels, and I understood how to take shots, how to take abuse on both ends, and still make a pallet in the center where I could sleep thinking about both things. And that's what made me stronger in my competitions, uh, 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 athletic competition, and my academic needs while in college. Right, and that's that kind of ties into to something else I wanted to ask you about. So jumping forward to the um, 68 Olympics, and can you, can you talk about some of the different 
pressures you were you were facing um you know going into that that final meet where where you ultimately won won the gold medal i mean i would expect that not only you know your family everybody back at san jose state from your community there there had to have been tons and tons of of, of different groups who maybe all expected different things yeah, from yeah, you true. from that one yeah. race and what yeah. happened after yeah my my personality was very quiet very 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 soft very very smooth one might say uh, uh, in college, I I talk very little, uh, unlike now, <laughs> very little. Sometimes I didn't talk at all during the day. Even in class, I would sit in the back of the class and take as much as I could in. So when I started talking, whoa, that 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 was freedom for me because I I, I became free to do things, which moved me to the question you just asked into uh, using competition or using athletics. To, to to expound upon my feelings and what the, the necessity was in society for equality. And because of my athleticism, it gave me a platform to at least speak sensibly because I had a background of, 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 of control, of doing to the other person as, uh, as, like I wanted done to me. But I found out that that wasn't it because equality wasn't, Equal. I mean, it wasn't an equal situation. So I had to fight for that equality, which took me to the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was started by Dr. Harry Edwards on the campus of San Jose State. And being a world record holder, I held 11 world records simultaneously, more than any man or woman in track and field history in the world, that was optimal. So I was recruited to talk about competitions. But by talking about competition, it gave me the opportunity to also talk about the advancement of man equally. And that's what got me in trouble. <laughs> but those who are in trouble talking about advancement are some of the most important people you can be around because of the educational background of some of those people, the need to talk some, uh, 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 by some of those people, and the pride of being not afraid to talk about those things. That's highlighted a lot of issues, even today. Young people are standing up because they're no longer afraid. So do you think it's, it's easier today for young people to, to stand up and make their voices heard, you know, heard than it was for, for you and your you know, colleagues? No such thing is easy. It's, it's different and di difficult for it to happen because, number one, it saddens the human being to think that you're being looked over. Even even the younger age are beginning to see that now. There's a sacrifice in that because there are some students now are being uh, are being uh, socially uh, uh, disallowed to do certain things because they're standing up for the right of a student to move forward, for the students to move forward. My personal thought, you cannot turn back students. Don't sit down and say, well, I worked yesterday, today I'll relax. There's no relaxing now. You have to continue. Otherwise, defeat, you're giving that idea to those who are waiting for you to relax or to stand back. Those who are involved for the act of having fun or to making a problem within that realm of being a student, and they're, they're out there, they're, they're those, those people out there in all areas of life, must be outnumbered by those who 
are looking at it as an advancement socially, progressively in life to take the whole thing, take the whole rock and move forward. Even with the little rotten rocks on the inside, their whole rocks still has to roll. So you, you mentioned um, the, the idea of sacrifices, right? And so you have to kind of give up something uh, for, for personal gain in support of this, this greater goal. And I think we're certainly seeing that with, with students today. But I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those sacrifices that, that, that you made as, as a result of, of the, the salute at, at the, the 68 Games or other actions that you took. I am a mover of societal needs, which is equality, which is the idea of moving forward proactively, uh, 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 not necessarily pending, pending time on, I don't have time, but you must take time because, as Tommy Smith, people were viewing me as a world-class athlete, but this world-class athlete wanted to do more than just run. I wanted to run for life and not run to win a track and field race, but win ultimately because of life. And, and because of my tenacity and just moving forward, moving forward, not saying very much, like Mexico City, the victory stand, how, how much did I talk on the victory stand? Nothing. Zero. Zero. Yeah, and that is not a short song, the, the national anthem, either. When we're curious, what was, what was going through your that, mind that, that, during that? It's, it's an hour and a half long. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, it's what it felt like. You know, they, it, not, not just an, oh, my God, what am I doing? I mean, am I going to get shot while I'm standing here? But I was praying during that time. But even though you're praying and hoping that the people see this uh, as, a, as an ultimate uh, value those, uh, through sacrifice. But, you know, physically, that thought doesn't help that tired arm that's sticking in the air with the, with the glove on it, uh, I- I- implying the power that's needed for us to move forward as a society. In terms, a lot of folks call, oh, gosh, look at him. He's a black power. He's a, he's a black panther. This was not about a black power or a black panther. It was about human rights. The, the black glove indicated a sight of power. You see the sights now. Even white athletes, white athletes are using it. I mean, they, everybody's using it. This is, this is the, 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 the ratification of that particular move, ratifying it as a positive gesture, not a gesture of ignorance or a gesture of hate. It takes too much energy to hate. I mean, why can I take the, I can take the energy to go eat an apple or something, you know? Uh, no hate. Tommy Smith, no, I'm from a background of love. I'm from the cotton field, 12 children going to church, and it's not me picking up a gun, shooting somebody, you know? Okay, I'll come. I'm still preaching yeah. there. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say this. Uh, the, the, the idea of the glove representing power. And being a black athlete, what would you say? You say black power. So people who, who want to say black power, fine, say black power. But it's not a black power implicating violence. No way, no way. Uh, wore socks with the pants leg rolled up to indicate poverty, to indicate the need to step forward, though poverty was a part of it, but proactivity because where you're from is more important. So represent the poverty. Uh, bowed head. I'm, I'm a church-going kid, you know. You, you pray, you know. I'd much rather leave my uh, discern ideas on, on the, on the, on the uh, uh, morning bench or the altar than trying to, trying to pacify my own idea of me being powerful. Right. He said, lay it in front of me. I will take care of it. Don't look back. Keep moving. And that's what I did. Even, even Mexico 68 Victor Stand, that's what I did. 
I did what I did because I thought there was a need for me to do it. Yeah, so we've we've seen from our the, the students in um, Parkland, Florida, several things I think that maybe we can draw some parallels from to, to your moment in, in 68. So uh, Emma Gonzalez at the, the March for Our Lives led six minutes of silence. We've also seen um, David Hogg, another one of the students, uh, kind yeah. of standing with his yeah. fists in the air. I'm yeah. curious what, what you think about how those I, actions are being used. I, I smile. I smile with a, a fullness of of, 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 of heavenly thanks that these, I, I call them children, but they're, they're, they're full-grown people, in my, in my term, just to do what they're doing. The silence, the fists in the air, mo it's movement forward. Uh, see, that silence, I, I, I can dial in to because that's what I did. And the fist, I also did. So they did two things that I did by myself back in the day. And th th that's the pride of it. And, and you know something? What they did was basically the same thing that I was trying to expound upon through silence. They had a TV. I mean, the, 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 the TV picked that up and used it. If This was the first time in 1968, the first time the Olympic Games were shown live. The first time. So... America couldn't pull a plug to protect its young kid from seeing the truth or any other country because it was live. It, 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 it. First time uh, uh, the, the Olympic Games was run, run on an all-weather track. The first time the 200 meters was run under 20 seconds. Uh, the first time the victory stand was described as a victory stand. You ask anyone today, well, most folks today, what do you remember about the 19, 1968 Olympics victory stand? They have something to say. Well, I thought they were wrong. Okay, fine. That's your thought. Hey, great. I'm glad, glad you can think. Some people say, well, I don't know what he meant. No, I meant what you meant because I didn't say anything. You meant it. So tell me what you meant because of what you saw. You see? Right. Um, so speaking um, about the the '68 Olympics, um, I was I've been reading about um, Avery Brundage, who was which is a name I'm sure you'll never forget. <laughs> the um, he was the um, commissioner, right, Olympic yeah, commissioner. The, yeah. And so um, I saw something from him where he said that you know sports should be a politics free area. You know the the two never shall mix, right? And I think in yeah. some ways we're still having that same conversation today when we talk about Colin Kaepernick and, and other people who kind of in that era. Um, do you think that that needle has moved at all in the past 50 years in terms of you know, that, that intersection between sports and politics and protest? You know, politics has been part of sport ever since sport has been a part of people sitting down watching it. Uh, and it will be here uh, 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 until dot, dot, dot. If, if, if you view that way that the sports is, does not uh, have a, a political uh, uh, ramification, then you're missing the, the excitement of sport because sport is politics, um, even more so now. Let me, let me stay back in the 60s or right now. Uh, we wore red, white, and blue uniforms. Uh, the flag was shown for each country, uh, you know. Uh, uh, the indication of being from another country was a prideful thing because you met other athletes. Money didn't pass between athletes. It, it passed through federations. So there was a lot of money involved. Politics is the ground force power in 
athletics, even now, but I'm about to stay back in the 60s, okay? Athletes then were used for the sensation of making money for those who ran the USATNF, the IAAF, the USOC, and all that, all, all those things. So they're the one that was driving the uh, Bentleys or the Rolls Royces uh, while the athletes were suffering for their lunch meat at school, even those athletes who were on full scholarship like I was. I had to work during the summer just to, just to make ends meet during the year, put on full scholarship, such as books, $25 a semester for books back then. That, that was part of a full scholarship. Now, 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 now. So, so, it's really a lie. Politics has always been a part of sports. Now, uh, uh, Avery Brundage, Avery Brundage from the old days, poor guy. Yes, he was a racist person, period. And he knew it, but he didn't know anything else to do. Okay? Yeah. He banned Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968 for making a small dedication to human rights. Okay? So Jesse Owens got fired, and Tommy Smith and John Carlos got fired. Doesn't that sound kind of... And, and I don't think that it's going to be easy on people being fired in the future because there will be nobody left to be fired and we're going to be in trouble, more trouble than we are now. Right. And so I guess there, there was not an easy period for you coming back from, from Mexico City. It's, it seems like there were, was kind of a, a difficult period perhaps, but then um, maybe some, sometime in the, in the 80s, please, please correct me if I'm wrong, but things kind of turned around. And so you, you guys, at least from, from what I had seen, kind of went from being vilified I don't, i'm not sure if that's uh, the right I, word but you know from there word. to you know having now you you there's there is a a monument to you guys at san jose state yeah. so you know what what did that feel like to you to to kind of see that that change over time and kind of go from someone who had been vilified to someone who's now has has a a statue of himself on on your college <laughs> campus i I, gi- I give that precedence i give that honor to those who work toward that statue, the statue being implanted on the San Jose State campus because they use their ideas to, to make understood the, the, their pride in Mexico 68, the thought process, because I said nothing. Uh, mine was visual. They're the ones that did a visual things to be understood in reality in perpetuity. Uh, so that is what I was proud of, is the stand to make students look and wonder what is that. As a thought process without taking a class. Every time you walk, pa- every time a student walks past that statue, he or she has to think something. To the reason why it's there. Uh, some good, some bad, but there's still a thought, still a thought process. Even more importantly, one that 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 that, that uh, is 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 historically mounted that make them the, that important much bigger is the full uh, 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 the, the full. Uh, human-sized statue in uh, in Washington D.C. at the African American History Museum on uh, on the on the uh, the mall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, so, and so, what is what is that? You know, what was that like for you um, emotionally to to kind of you know go from from being vilified to now the the opposite of that, whatever you know, that is. I, I was vilified, but I, I I didn't view that because. I, I wasn't vilified, but like, like I said, let's go back to the beginning of our little talk. I am from an area where I was vilified as a child. 
in the fields, being taunted, seeing my dad being taunted and my mom being taunted. My mom sent uh, uh, animal feces and dead rats to, to our house. And she was told later, my sisters told me later, like five years ago, that the people who did it told her who it was and they laughed about it. Wow. This was in 1968. My mother died in 1971 because of pressure, not only of that, but because of other things around her. So there was a lot of things. Vilification came way before Mexico City. So when I was vilified here, I just returned the brain back to how I made it and the forces that helped me make it because of my beliefs through a system which was bigger and stronger then than it was back then. So I, I used those powers of strength that I had then to make move, to make a move from from Mex from when I got back from Mexico, I think that's what the question was, mm -hmm. to moving forward. I have been there. I have done that. Now, you don't stop because this is happening to you. It happened before. That's the first chapter. This is the second chapter. Now, there's going to be a third chapter someplace, which I'm living now. Mm -hmm. You see, after all this. So I live different chapters. And there's going to be another chapter coming. And nobody knows about it yet. And I'm not going to tell you yet until it comes. You can invite me back oh, here. Spoiler alert. I would love to, to, to talk more with you about, about your next chapter and everything that's, that's, that's coming up. I think this being the, the 50th anniversary of, of everything, uh, you know, the, the monumental year of, of 1968, I think there's certainly lots more to discuss than we unfortunately have time to do here today. Yeah, I know. You, you caught me in a talking, talking <laughs> mode now. You know, yesterday you, you would have gotten five minutes. Today uh, you got more than you need, really. No, no. This, is, this, has, been, this has been a great conversation. Um, I do want to close. Um, so we do kind of a, a lightning round at the end of, of every one of these podcast interviews. So the McCourtney Institute for Democracy here at Penn State, um, we do something called the Mood of the Nation poll, which um, is an open-ended poll. There are four questions that we ask at the end of, of every poll. So I'm going to ask you those four questions. We're going to think specifically here about American politics. And um, so with, with that in mind, um, what, what about American politics makes you angry? People who don't say anything. You, you know, we all love to talk, but there are some of us who talk without any action of moving forward because what they believe. Uh, lethargism has a lot to do with it. Right, right. Talking uh, without saying saying yeah. a thing. That's interesting. Um, and then what, what makes you proud about American politics? The freedom that we have to do what we don't. Can you explain that? <laughs> we have a freedom to talk, to move. You know, like the <laughs> smile you're exuding right now, there's something behind that smile. There are those people who smile but don't say why. So using the action, using the freedom to say what is not said. Interesting. And uh, what, um, what makes you worry? Worry? Mm -hmm. Worry? Worry. That's what makes me worry. Worry, worry <laughs> makes you worry? Yeah, worry, yeah. Um, and then what gives you hope? Hope is your faith in what you believe, okay? That's hope. Uh, and what's faith? Faith to me, and it's written already, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
But without faith, without work, rather, without work, that faith is dead. You can talk about what you want and what you can foresee, but if you don't work to maximize that hope, you're never going to see because that hope is around the corner. And God didn't make your eyes to go around the corner. <laughs> you have to work to get there so you can turn and look. Yeah, you've certainly put in the, the work over, over the course of your life. That's, that's for sure. And doesn't seem like you're going to stop anytime soon. So that's, that's great. Um, well, Tommy, we will, we will leave it there. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us today and for being so generous with your time. My pleasure. It was yeah. so interesting and, and also such a uh, key question in what happens going forward with Parkland and these and these uh, marches and protests yeah. because, uh, you know, you do hear a lot from people that are skeptical of them, people that are opposed to what it is they're arguing for that, well, we could just wait them out. I had a teacher in college who said the worst thing that can happen to a revolution is for it to succeed. And you could see where, if, yeah. you know, if they got a couple of victories that, you know, some of the energy would kind of like dissipate. And and um, and yeah, that's where we are. Right. And that's kind of where we are with Colin Kaepernick, too. It's like, you know, a lot of these protests in the NFL seem to have, you know, uh, gone or they're not as strong as they were. And that that fight will go on. And, you know, who knows, in, in 50 years, will we see uh, statues of Colin Kaepernick in uh, in San Francisco? Well, you know, you clearly um, you clearly have the same dynamic, don't you? I mean, you have somebody who. Um, had to make this commitment, make this sacrifice, and it would not surprise me at all that in, you know, with the passage of time, people kind of recognize, you know, he was right. <laughs> it, and he's calling us to live up better to our ideals. Yes. And it, I mean, it is remarkable, actually, how slowly, but, you know, with, I think, real implications, this issue of unequal treatment of different ways of dealing with the police is working its way into the political mm -hmm. mainstream. Mm -hmm. The other thing I just wanted to mention, and I think it's important, is that when you think of the protests that have staying power and which are uh, become historically important and become uh, valued by the society at large, they all have some common features. They're all dignified. They're all nonviolent. They're all um, not disturbing the event itself. Well, they I'm struck by how many of them are silent. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, so, and, and so that's interesting and I think important because if you want to be, um, you know, if you want your protest to be effective, then, you know, the, the kind of king model of uh, breaking the law lovingly, of, uh, of, of affirming the ceremony even as you protest within it is the smart and strategic way to do it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. interesting I mean, thought. it is interesting yeah. just to think about how, um, how, you know, Tommy Smith said, I had my head bowed because I spent my entire childhood and, and growing up years in church with my head bowed. Yeah. And if I want to express... Uh, a kind of um, gravitas, I mean, he would not use that word, but I kind of, you know, um, that this is an important, meaningful, spiritual moment, I bow my head. Well, many see Colin Kaepernick's and other NFL players kneeling in exactly the same exactly way. Exactly the same exactly way. Exactly the same way. And, well, yeah. and again, I mean, it just all I want to say is, uh, again, if somebody is doing that and they're protesting in that way, 
again, I think it's incumbent upon us all as democratic citizens to listen. Yeah. We don't have to accept it. We don't even have to like it, but we have to listen. Yeah. Well, what an interesting talk today with somebody doing the hard work of democracy. Absolutely. And, yeah. and, and paying the price and, and coming out the other side and still being a, a really impressive human being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is Democracy Works. Thank you.